Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Good morning, Southbridge. You ready to get after it this morning? What's your problem? Wait, just simmer down. Just kidding. I'm glad that you're excited. Let me pray for us and uh, we'll jump into the message this morning. Father, thank you so much that we can gather together as a church family. Thank you uh, for your spirit being present through worship. God, I I pray that we would be controlled by your love, that our thoughts would be controlled by your love, that our hearts would be controlled by your love. I know there's been terrible stuff that's happened this week uh, in our world. And uh, God, I pray that you'd use the people that are in this room to be a light in uh, the world that you have us in. Father, I pray that you transform us. I pray you transform our thinking. I pray you transform our hearts. Meet with us in this moment. Help us not just to learn new Bible verses, but to be more like your son, Jesus. I pray if there's anybody who doesn't know you today, that they would trust you as Savior today. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Last week we began this series called While You're Waiting, and I admitted to you that I hate to wait. I talked to you about my idolatry of time, and we talked about uh, just kind of how we all have these temptations when we're waiting for God to do something to either one, give up, kind of throw in the towel, or two, rush ahead of God. And if you remember, last week's message was titled, When Fools Rush In, and we talked about when we rush ahead of God, it actually reveals things that we believe, not just the stuff we talk about at church, but what our real beliefs are. And the first real belief we talked about when we rush ahead of God is that it reveals that we believe that God's goodness is in question. And then we talked about the second real belief that it can reveal is we we believe that God's power is not that real. And we talked about how a lot of times we'll, we'll tell these stories to our kids. We talked about what Bridge Kids was learning that day. And, you know, we can talk about the, you know, the kids we want them to believe that God parted the Red Sea. But as adults, we act like that's kid stuff. Like these are stories we want you to know, these are stories we want, and we believe the stories, but God doesn't work like that now, so he needs my help. That's how we act. I agree with you, Steve, in my head, but sometimes I live like God's so powerful, but I've got this impotent faith. Why is that? And that's where we see our real beliefs come out, and we talked about one of our other real beliefs is that we believe that results are more important than relationship, and I don't know if you remember last week, but I brought up the results button, which I do realize I've totally hijacked the easy button from Staples. Man, I got to do it. And my kids, my love, my kids love pushing. It's kind of the ghetto version here. But I said, what if you had a button that if you could come push this button, you'd get the, get to the result that you want in life, whatever it is you're waiting on, whatever it is you're praying for. And I'll just kind of leave this up here. And so some of you can just stare at that for the rest of the sermon, and not hear anything I say. Totally understand. But what if you could hit that button and fast forward to the results that you want? And what would happen is we'd miss the relationship, and God wants relationship, and he's working in us in our waiting to grow deep our roots in that relationship with him. And we saw, too, that it also reveals, it reveals that we don't think that the sin of rushing ahead of God, and yes, it's a sin, that it's going to have any consequences. There's a way that seems right to man, in the end it leads to death. There's always consequences. There's always a ripple effect for our sin. It's always greater than we think it's going to be. And it creates a mess, but then we saw the glorious truth as we were looking at Hagar in the Old Testament, that God meets us in the mess, that he's a God who sees, he's a God who hears, he's a God who cares, that he meets us in that mess. At the end of the message, we had people stand and acknowledge if they've rushed ahead of God and, and made a mess. We had lots of people stand in both services, and we prayed for those folks, and we had folks that said, hey, if you're waiting on the Lord for something, you want to take that to the Lord, stand, and we had people stand on that, and we had a lot of guests last week, which is always exciting. It was a great day. Let me fast forward to Monday morning, get to real life, when real life happens and the intersection, you know, I'm pumped, preaching on waiting, uh, you know, God's working in people's lives, I've heard good reports of what God's doing, I'm on my way into the office Monday morning, 
I come to a four-way stop, also known in my life as a sanctification stop. It's a place where God tests my faith and makes me more like Jesus. And so I easily admit to you that time is an idol for me, but let me tell you what impatient people are like. I'm sitting at this four-way stop, and so it's one of the ones that has the blinking red light, you know, the right of way is supposed to go each time. I'm about four or five cars back in this intersection. I start to look up and make sure everything's going is equitable. You know, it's all fair. Everybody's you guy's not rushing ahead up there. Like, I'm going to do anything about it anyways. But I'm watching, and then I'm so impatient, I start looking who am I going to be against? I mean, up there with <laughs> when my time comes. And I'm going to try and turn left when I get to this stop sign. And I look ahead and I see there's this huge truck that's about four or five cars back across from me. And we'll just call it Bessie. Bessie the time slayer. (laughs) Because if Bessie turns right, we're going to now be headed down a two-lane road that's no passing. And so I know I'm not going to like that part of the sanctification process. And so we get up to the light and I hustle, but I want to come to a complete stop so I can judge the other people if they roll through, right? So I've got judgment going on and impatience at the same time. And we get up there, and i got my left turn blinker on. I look across, and yes, it's Bessie that pulls up right there. She's got her right blinker on. And so I crank my wheels. I'm pretty confident the young man on the vehicle across saw that, and he cranks his wheel, and he probably beat me to the stop sign, but I don't think his tires ever stopped moving. I was judging. And I hit the gas. I look at the right and look at the left, make sure I'm not going to get in a car accident here, but I punch the gas to go through. And I think what happened at that moment was that God spoke to the young man in that truck and said, you know what, this would be for Scott's good and for my glory if you would get in front of him. (laughs) And so that guy punched the gas too. And he gets out on this road and he's traveling down this road and then I'm behind him at a safe distance, (laughs) close, not traveling as fast as I want to go. And then God says, Remember your preaching about waiting? It was convicting in that moment. And I don't know if I'm preaching this stuff so I can learn it. I'm learning, just so you know. I'm in process. I don't know if anybody else here is learning about waiting, but when I did the survey last week, many of you raised your hand. You said you hated to wait. Remember last week I asked this question. If you weren't here last week, maybe you write down the answer to this or or put it in your device or whatever it is. It's for you. I'm not going to ask you to turn it in. But what is the single most important thing in your life that God hasn't done yet? Another way to ask that is, what are you waiting for God to do? And so you might want to write that answer down. But the question I want to ask today is a different question. It's why should you wait? Why should I have waited? And why should I have not been so impatient in that situation? Why should I wait on the Lord for the most important? Because that's not the most important thing. That's just like a microcosm of what's happening in my spiritual life as a whole. Why, why, should, I, why should I want to wait? What's the motive for waiting? Something uh, humorous, uh, probably to the Lord, happened later that day on Monday. Uh, we had our staff meeting, and we were all talking about different areas of ministry and praying together as a staff about what's happening in different areas of ministry, personal stuff, different things like that. And the first person to pray was our, our youth pastor, Dan Ryan. And Dan started to pray. And I don't know if you've ever had somebody praying and you think, are they praying to me? Are they praying at me right now? Like it's so convicting what they're praying. And he started to pray, and he wasn't. He was praying to the Lord, wasn't thinking about me at all. He's praying, dear Lord, Help us not to just call you Lord, but to submit to your Lordship. And I realized how easy it is for me to be transparent, to admit that that's a sin for me, to admit that impatience, to be transparent, but then to not actually submit it to the Lord, to surrender it to his Lordship. Why? Why should I wait? And so if you have your Bibles today, we're going to be in Romans chapter 8. Last week we were in the Old Testament in Genesis. Today we're going to be in Romans. Romans is in the New Testament right after the book of Acts. Romans chapter 8, about right in the middle of this book. And our outline for today's message, some of you like to take notes. You can write this down ahead of time and fill it in in just a moment. Our outline is real simple. It follows this structure, problem, solution, application. 
And so those of you who don't take notes, just kind of tell yourself that. The first point is going to be the problem. The second point is going to be the solution. The way we're going to wrap up is talking about this. What do we do? The application. Which is interesting because that's really the structure of the book of Romans as a whole. So we're going to dive into a passage in Romans. But Romans as a whole is structured with problem. The first three chapters are all about the problem. Here's the problem. It's terrible. We have no hope. We're all under the condemnation of God. Romans chapter 1. Everybody that can look out and see creation and have the ability to see there's a creator out there are condemned. Enough information to send you to hell, not enough information to get you to heaven. Romans chapter 1. But what about moral people? Well, he tells us that there's actually nobody that's moral because it's not just about our behavior. He actually cares about our motives. And so even stuff that we do that sometimes appears to be good stuff, it's actually self-centered stuff. All sin and fall short of the glory of God. Romans chapter 1 through 3. That's the, everybody's got no hope. Then the solution is in chapters 4 through 8. The application comes later. There's a little parenthetical in verses nine, chapters 9 through 11, but chapters 12 through 16 are kind of the, so what do we do? How, what do we, all this theology of Romans, what do we do? And where we're at in this book is really in the solution section. The solution section says this, that God is the judge, but he solved the problem. Rather than putting the condemnation on you, he put it on his son, Jesus Christ. And so the judge then paid your debt in court for you through his son Jesus. And it wasn't because you did something right. It says in chapter 5, verse 8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Chapter 6, chapter 6 is a glorious chapter. We oftentimes talk about it. We baptized people a couple weeks ago. We say buried with Christ in baptism, raised to walk in newness of life. That comes from Romans chapter 6. Living in a new way of life. Why? Because the wages of sin was death, Romans 6, 23. What you earned, you got condemnation. But the gift of God is eternal life. So God extends a gift. And those of you who have not received that gift, I'll give you an opportunity to do that at the end of the service today, just so you know. But he goes through in chapter 6. Chapter 7 talks about, you know, we're free from sin, but we still battle sin. And Paul even talks about it. He's writing the book. He's written a bunch of the New Testament. He says, I don't do the stuff I, I want to do, and I don't do the stuff. It's like this, I want to do the right thing, but I, I want to sin. And there's this battle that's within me. Then chapter 8 is this glorious chapter. And it starts in chapter 8 and verse 1. And think about what the first three chapters are about. It says, therefore, there's no condemnation, but not for everyone, only for those who are in Christ. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So the question is, are you in Christ Jesus? If you're in Christ Jesus, then hallelujah. It's awesome. Praise the Lord. And then chapter 8 goes through, how do you battle this? This tension that happens, our struggle with sin, and it's by the Spirit. Don't live according to the flesh, live according to the Spirit, because the battle's not really stuff out here. It's what's going on in here that's the issue. Chapter 8's got some glorious truths, some glorious promises. It talks about being adopted into God's family. We can call him Father. But in chapter 8 and verse 18, and what we're going to read is verses 18 through 25. In chapter 8, verse 18, Paul dives into the deep end of the pool about waiting because he talks about waiting while we're suffering. Is there any time that's more difficult than waiting while we're suffering? The verse right before it, he's just promised suffering. And sometimes you'll hear prosperity preachers, and they'll tell you. And sometimes you get prosperity light. There's some guys that are popular right now that are prosperity light. They don't just say, hey, if you believe, then your bank accounts will be full. But they give you this idea that if you just changed your perspective on life, then everything would be better. Rise above your circumstances. If you just see a different thought, way to think about this. And Paul's saying, no, 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 that's not true. This is like the anti-prosperity gospel passage we're looking at. He says, if, if you're godly, you will suffer. Read verse 17, those of you who have your Bibles, and it says you're, you're going to suffer with him in order that you be glorified with him. And so it's pretty depressing news. But verse 18 is responding to that. So read with me verses 18 through 25 right now. It says, for I consider, that's a mathematical term, legizomai. It means to, uh, to, to think numerically. Like he's, he's weighing out the calculations here, but he's not speaking literally like he's weighed out all the calculations of this, but just figuratively. When you, when you weigh this out, what does he say? For when I consider 
weigh this all out, that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that's to be revealed to us. So there's something, the future glory, that far outweighs the sufferings today. And verse 19 explains it. For the creation, did you know that creation even waits? Creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. It's not even waiting for its own thing, its own redemption. It's waiting for your future glory. Verse 24, the creation was subjected to futility. That means it can't fulfill its purpose. Not willingly, creation didn't sin, but because of him who subjected it. God subjected it because he's the one who subjected it in hope. And you might underline the word hope every time we see it in this passage. That the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption to the Son, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And so here he answers the question really in that last verse. Why? Why? Why should we wait? But he starts off talking about our problem. He lifts our eyes in verse 18 from the temporal, from all the temporary stuff here to the eternal because Paul knows that our problem is this. Our problem is that we're tempted by the temporary. The problem is that we're tempted by the temporary. And you think about sin in general. How many times we're just thinking about the temporary stuff? Have you ever heard this statement before? Sin makes you stupid. And usually you hear people say that, and they'll be talking about, you know, some guy threw away his marriage, maybe lost his job, hurt his kids, having an affair. Sin makes you stupid. Why'd you do something so stupid? Let me rephrase it another way, too. I don't, I'm not saying that's not true, but sin makes us short-sighted. Sin makes us, we, we think about the temporary. We're tempted by the temporary. And so you think you can go to the garden in Genesis chapter 3. Do you think that Eve was thinking to herself? I'm going to hand this to my husband. Sin's going to enter the world through one man. And he's, the food looks good to eat. Not there's cursing on the land, on creation. Not there'll be pain in childbirth. Not there's going to be frustration in work. Not that sin's going to be for everybody after this point. Just in this moment, that looks like it's good to eat. I think I'll eat it. Which we can all relate to, right? Do you ever overeat? So we can talk about affairs. And like that's kind of obvious. But what about overeating? Do you ever see that, that tub of ice cream? And you've already had a dish. And you're like, well, somebody's got to. How else am I going to wash down this double cheeseburger? <laughs> and so you, you, you do it. But in that moment, you're probably not thinking about the next time you go to the gym and how that's going to feel, or extra calories you've got to burn, or pounds you're going to put on. Probably not thinking about your chest getting cracked open and having bypass surgery someday. And that's all still just temporary. And so you, I love the story. There's this guy named Esau that you read about in the Bible. He's in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it tells a story and when I look at it, and this is oftentimes how I look at other people's sin, but then I think about my own and go, you're, you're stupid. I, I look at him and I go, what, are you, what an idiot. Here's this guy. He trades his birthright, which means his inheritance, his right to be the head of the household, the head of the family, which is a big deal back then, for a bowl of beans. <laughs> and I look at him like, what an idiot. And then I look at my own life and I'm like, I'm an idiot too. But you get to the New Testament, and the New Testament makes commentary about that. And I love what the New Testament says about it in Hebrews chapter 12 because it sheds light on what happened there. And let me tell you, when you read Esau in the Old Testament, there's no woman there in provocative clothing. But listen to what Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, verse 16. Let nobody be like Esau, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who, doesn't talk about a woman, sold his birthright for a single meal. 
The way that God looks at sin and the way that we look at sin is not the same. You're saying that God looked at that and saw that like sexual immorality? He was eating a bowl of beans. It's beans. <laughs> they must have been really good beans. <laughs> but it was the lust, the lust of the flesh, the pride of life. We get focused on the temporary. And then you put that with the fact that we can talk about this with like greed or lust or anger. And we're like, yeah, we're just so focused on the temporary. But, but you didn't think about what we're like as a people as a whole. We are not people that are typically focused on eternity. Just think about the different focuses that folks have in North Raleigh. So there's the kid-focused families, right? Like you've seen this before. And what you look at, you don't see anything as overtly sinful. But let's say that you gotta, we've got to have our kid on the best sports team. We've got to have the best gymnastics squad, the best theater group, the best science fair, the best whatever it is. Why? Let me ask that question. Just keep asking yourself this question. Why? Why do we do what we do? Why do you do that? Oh, because I want them to get into a good... You probably don't think they're like, you know, the next, you know, best golfer in the world, LeBron James. If they were LeBron James, we would have heard of them by now. But my kid's only five. Yeah, we'd know. It's okay. So most of us, take that hyperbole out the window. Most of us aren't thinking that. But we want them to get into a good school. Why? Why do you want them to get a good school? So they can get a good job. Why? Why do you want them to get a good job? So they can have a good career. Why? So they can have a, a, a good family. Why? So they can repeat the cycle. Okay. Why? And, and while it's not like this overtly sinful, it's like we don't, we're not saying, well, because I don't want them to become a serial killer. I don't want them to whatever. No, but it's all focused on here. It's not focused on eternity. And so we can take other things. And so you don't, don't, don't just pick on people that are focused on their kids and kid-centering. You can take it career-centric. Well, I've got to get this job, and I'm going to interview for this other job, and I need to get this promotion. I'm gonna, why, 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 why? So I can get acknowledged, so I can have a comp, so I can be a light for Jesus. Really? Why, why? I want to do security, security-focused people. I want to comfort-focused people, money-focused people. You know, it's not even wrong to focus on money. The problem is we're so short-sighted with it. Jesus tells us we should store up money in heaven. But most of us, it's our 401K. The problem is our focus is so temporary, we're tempted by the temporary. And what Paul does in this passage is he goes to the spot where we're most susceptible to be tempted by the temporary, suffering. When is there a time? Sometimes the suffering is mental anguish. Sometimes the suffering is physical pain. Sometimes it's emotional stuff. Sometimes it's spiritual. Sometimes your waiting is your suffering. But when is there a time when you're more apt to be focused on the temporary than when there's pain, difficulty? And so Paul says, go back to verse 18, for I consider, when I'm thinking through all this stuff, when I'm weighing it all out, that the sufferings, and he's not making light of your suffering. Okay, remember who's writing this, the apostle Paul. I bet, I don't know all of your pain, but I bet he suffered more. He talks about it if you want to study on your own. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, read verses 24 through 28. He lists a whole bunch of suffering that he goes through. I don't know if we have those verses or not. We won't read them all if we do. But 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 through 28, he goes, hey, I've suffered. I've been shipwrecked. I've been stoned. I've been flogged. And he goes through all these physical sufferings. Then he talks about his emotional sufferings. He talks about anxiety. He talks about being stranded, being stranded at sea. This guy one time, read about in Acts chapter 14, he gets stoned, left for dead, Gets up, the next day goes and preaches the gospel. So it's like, you're a bad dude, Paul. But he knows pain. He knows what it's like to lose friendships. He knows what it's like to pray prayers and God not answer them the way that he wants them answered. This thorn in the flesh, I prayed that God would take it away. Three times, three times, God said no. Well, that's a delay then. It'll be taken away eventually in glory. But not here. No, you wait. Paul knows what it is to wait. He's not making light of your sufferings. 
So he says here in verse 18, a verse, he says it a different way in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 17, for this slight, not minimizing your affliction, but it's slight because it's momentary, slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. And what you get when you read the Bible is you almost get this feel that if you're going to be godly, you have to suffer, which is exactly what verse 17 is saying which is the context for this. He says this. Let me read it to you in case you didn't bring your Bible. And if, if children, then heirs. That's us. Heirs of God. So we're going to receive all that. That's awesome. Totally would go into prosperity gospel. And fellow heirs with Christ provided, here's what we don't want to talk about, we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Because what happens in our suffering is in our suffering we get to know the suffering servant, Jesus Christ, who suffered more than anyone ever. Because no matter how bad our suffering is, we have not experienced what Jesus experienced on the cross. When he suffered, he hadn't sinned. He's suffering for your sin, for my sin, the wrath of God. So you think about the worst pain. I was talking on the phone this week with a friend from our church. And a young lady, and she was getting brokenhearted over human trafficking, which is an issue that if you've been around our church, you know is an issue that our church cares about. We partner with a ministry called Women at Risk International. Every guest that fills out a guest card, we make a donation to them. We've done jewelry parties to raise money for them. And raise awareness. We've had their leader come here and talk about how you can recognize human trafficking because it does happen here in Raleigh. And this young lady, is she's weeping. Like, why does God even create these girls? They get abused and used and no one even knows their story. And I told her, I said, I don't, I'm not minimizing your care for them, but God cares more. And then I went back to the story that we talked about last week, Hagar. Remember, she's the only character in the Bible that names God. And in her, she's been abused, she's been objectified, she's cast off, she's running away, and she says, you're the God who sees. So God sees, God hears, God cares. That, that girl, when she was in the womb, God knew her. He was with her. He's present with her when she was sold, when she was objectified, when she was abused. God was there. You don't think that breaks his heart? And do you know what happened on the cross? Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? No matter what you've been through and I've been through, God is with you in that. He's forsaken on the cross so you and I can be forgiven. When we go through our difficulty, it's so that we can know him better, who's gone through far more than us. He knows what abuse is like. He knows what it's like to be betrayed. He knows what it's like to be isolated. He knows what it's like to experience physical pain. He's been through all of it. He knows what it's like to see people that he loves turn from him and turn from God. And when we go through stuff like that, it's like we suffer with him. We get to know him. Every godly person suffers as part of the Christian life. It's like this waiting series. I thought I'd laugh this week when I realized, oh, we're doing a short series on waiting. <laughs> Is that my fault? I don't know. We get to talk about this forever. That is the Christian life. Wait, we're all waiting because we're all waiting for Christ to return. We're all waiting for to get out of these bodies that are decaying. We're all waiting for this to be done. And what Paul's saying here is when I consider this suffering that we go through now, it's not worth comparing the future glory we receive. So he's saying, don't be tempted by the temporary, which is so tempting. And I've done it. Take it this week about my own life and times that I've been in situations where I'm just consumed with the circumstances. And I was thinking about when my dad passed away. I remember when my dad first, some of you know the story of some of the miraculous things God did in the process with my dad. But in 1999, my dad trusted Christ as Savior. In 2000, he had an aortic dissection. While he's at work, his aorta burst. His arms stopped working, his legs stopped working. He was care flighted to a hospital that was four hours away from where I was going to school. 
I had preached to about 3,000 people the day before. And then I got this message, and I was, I was, I'm not proud of the things I said to God. I don't know if I'd say I cursed God, but I was angry. And I was yelling at God, and I was telling him that. I drove four hours to go sit in the waiting room. Well, he's having this surgery that's going to take another five and a half hours. I was there with my fiance at the time, Shannon, and now my wife. And my mom was there, and one of my good friends, the guy who led me to Jesus, his name was Mike, was there. For five and a half hours, I sat there. And all I could think about was my dad. His circumstances, God, you better heal him. You better do these things, miraculously answer these prayers. And while I'm doing that, my friend Mike is sharing the gospel with my mom, telling her how she can have a relationship with Jesus. The really ironic thing is that the night before this happened, I had a professor in college challenge me, pray that God brings circumstances into your mom's life that makes her sensitive to the gospel. So if anybody should have been sharing the gospel with my mom, it should have been me. But all I could think about was the circumstances. You better heal my dad. You better do this thing. I'm thankful for my friend Mike, who was thinking about the eternal, when all I was thinking about was the temporal. When you get into suffering, it's tempting to just think about the temporary. And what Paul's saying here is this, I, get, I, know, I know suffering, but it's not even worth comparing to future glory, which takes us to our solution. Don't be tempted by the temporary, that's our problem. We get tempted by the temporary, here's our solution. The solution is we must have eternal hope. And that word hope, I almost want to bold that whole, that whole part of the point. We must have eternal hope, because the hope that I'm talking about is not the hope most of us think of. We'll get to that in just a minute. We must have eternal hope, and that eternal hope is in future glory. And so you might not tweet this, but don't miss this. Future glory is what fuels us, what gives us the hope to have eager patience. Future glory is what gives us the hope to have eager. When you want, you're like excited about waiting, eager patience. So why should we wait? Here's your answer. This is the solution. We've got to have eternal hope. And so Paul goes on in this passage, he says, this is not worth comparing. The sufferings we experience here, the thing that would make us most focused on circumstances here, is not even worth comparing. Now think about that. Not even worth comparing. Paul's not a lazy thinker. He's not a guy that, like, if you keep reading through New Testament letters, he doesn't just go, yeah, there's not even words for this. Like, he doesn't, doesn't even try to explain it. Paul's a guy, he goes sometimes at length and just goes on these rabbit trails talking about stuff. And how easy it would be to compare temporary, momentary suffering, where you look at that 2 Corinthians passage, to eternal glory. And we're talking about your eternal glory, by the way. When you're made like Christ. It's not even worth comparing. He could have said, it's like, it's, you know, your suffering now is like a piece of dust in comparison to the Atlantic coast. Like your suffering now is like a mosquito in comparison to, what's the biggest bird? Pterodactyl? I don't know. Anybody out there know that? I don't know. My thinking is sloppy, apparently. It's like, it's like an atom, like some of you are scientists. It's like an atom in comparison not just to a planet, but to the universe he could have picked anything small and compared it to something big. And I'm sure you can make those comparisons in your mind right now. He could have said that. It's not like he can't think of those things. But he's saying, this isn't even worth comparing because the future glory is so good. And so then he goes on to talk about future glory in verses 19 through 25. Let me read it to you. We'll just kind of walk through this passage. For, the word for is there for a reason. He's explaining verse 18. So you just take a passage. Verse 17 was connected, started with four. It was explaining verse 17. Verse 17 was, you're going to suffer. That's depressing. Verse 18, he then says, but you're not even going to think about your suffering anymore once you realize your eternal glory. And what is he talking about with eternal glory? Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing, eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. It's not waiting for its own redemption. It's waiting for your redemption. Did you see that? 
for the revealing of who are these people that, verse 15, have been adopted into God's family. They get to call God Abba, Father. For, verse 20 explaining, the creation was subjected to futility, can't fulfill its purpose, not willingly, creation didn't sin, we sinned, but because of him, God, who subjected it, God cursed it, Genesis 3, 17 through 19, but he subjected it, look at that word, in hope, verse 21, that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption, so if you want to know if there's suffering and pain in this passage, you got the word suffering in verse 18, you got futility in verse 20, you got corruption here in verse 21, you go to verse 22, groaning, pains, verse 23, groan, there's all this suffering through here, but then there's all this hope. Creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For, verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Think about that groaning. I think of groaning as a parent. I automatically think of my kids. You know, they'll be watching some Netflix cartoon in the living room and I'll go to get the dishwasher is not empty. And so it's one of their chores to empty the dishwasher. And I'll say to the kid, hey, you got to come empty the dishwasher. No! You mean like the world is ending in this moment. The groans, the kicking, the rolling around on the ground. It's like, are you kidding me? No, Paul takes it to another level in this verse. Not just groaning like lifting weights groaning. Not just groaning like dishwasher groaning. He says here, childbirth groaning. Now, I don't know how many of you have had birth, given birth. I have not. <laughs> I'm not going to say that I know what that's like. I, I didn't want to make too light of that when I made comment about it. And so I did a little internet search. And the internet said that the average human can handle 45 units dells of pain. That childbirth is 57 units of pain. Women, you are tougher than me. I give you that. You got it. Amen. I think that was Jim. It would be more appropriate if it would have been a woman. But that's fine. <laughs> You women, you're tough. You, you do that. The article went on to say that it's the equivalent of having 20 bones broken in your body. Yeah, that's, that's bad. That's worse than dishwasher groaning. <laughs> and we know that creation groans. Even if you don't know the Bible that well, see, in Matthew and in Mark, Jesus talks about the end times. And he talks about the creation going through birth pains, labor pains. And do you know what he says it is? He says it's tension with North Korea. Well, he kind of does, Steve. <laughs> he says it's rumors of wars and wars and nation against nation and earthquakes. He says those are birth pains. It's the stuff that we see in creation that's happening. It's birth pains. that are. It's a sign of the end of the times. It's a sign of creation longing. It's living in futility. It can't fulfill its purpose until we're fully redeemed. But then Paul goes on, and he says, not only does creation groan, and here, if you want anti-prosperity gospel, look at verse 23, and not only the creation, but we ourselves. So here it is in the middle of a passage about the, there's no condemnation in Christ. We've been adopted into the family. We're given all the blessings, that we are heirs, that we have the Holy Spirit. But he says here that we groan. We ourselves, we groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Now pause right there. And if you have your Bible, jump up to verse 15. He says, we've been adopted. We can cry out, Abba. But he says here that we're waiting for adoption. Well, which is it, Paul? Are you contradicting yourself just within a few verses? What he's referring to here, what he's alluding to, is what theologians call the already and the not yet. And it's where we live as Christians. These things are already true. 
God has adopted us into his family. We can call him father. We are adopted. We are his children. We do have his inheritance. We have his identity. All those things are true. We've not yet fully experienced those things. And so there's a tension that we live in. The already and the not yet. It's already absolutely 100% true. We've not yet fully experienced it. And so one analogy I've heard, I heard somebody else share one time was, it's like an orphan in an orphanage who gets adopted. Their family has seen them, pursued them, traveled for come after them, seen the pictures, paid the fees, taken care of the debt, all that's done. They've spent time together, they've met, but you're still living in the orphanage. And as an orphan in the orphanage, you can tell other orphans how they can get a home, how they can have a family, but you don't, you're not in your home yet. And that's what it's like for us. This place is not our home. But we're not orphans. We can crowd out a father. We have this relationship. We have an inheritance. We have the spirit. It is true. You are a son or daughter of the king. That is your identity. But we don't fully experience that yet because we're still in this place. And so there's a struggle. There's this groaning in us. But, but we can get through it because we have hope. Look at verses 24 and 25. And see how many times he says the word hope. Verse 24. For in this hope... We were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? If you could see it, by nature, it wouldn't even be hope anymore. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Why should we have patience? We should have patience because we have hope. But we don't just have any kind of hope. We have eternal hope. And so let me say what I'm going to say next. I'm going to say it slowly. I know I can talk fast. And all the guests are laughing. Everyone else is like, Amen. <laughs> Because I want this to change the way that you read the New Testament. When we talk about hope, most of us, we think of a wish. We don't necessarily say that, but it's, there's an uncertainty to our hope. And so just think about, think about the way that folks vote. Do you remember when President Obama ran his first time? His slogan was, hope and change. And you can talk about whatever, whatever I don't remember what promises he made, but you know, I'm sure health care was in there, and probably immigration stuff, and medical stuff, whatever the jobs are going to be. If you believe that he offered the best chance for that to be true, you cast your ballot with him. And it's true, not just with President Obama, with anybody. So it doesn't matter if it's Donald Trump, you know, make America great. If we, I believe that he could do it. If I believe local guys, whatever it is. And we have some hope that it's going to, but we don't have any certainty. We're just going, I trust him the most. He's got shared values. Maybe do what I would do. I hope that this would, and you cast your ballot with him. And so that's kind of the hope that we have. Or maybe you hope that something will happen good in your life. You hope that the thing that you're praying about will happen. I hope that I'll get married. I hope that I'll have a baby. I hope that I'll get a job. You don't have certainty of those things. That's the kind of hope we think of because that's what the English word means. There's a level of uncertainty to it. When you read the New Testament, the word for hope in the New Testament is 100% certain. You haven't seen it or experienced it. That's why there's hope, but there's no uncertainty in it. Because New Testament hope is based on the promises of God. And so here it talks about bringing the unseen into reality, but think about who you're trusting. It's God. If you believe the Bible, Genesis 1.1, he created everything out of nothing. That was all unseen. So anything you see is evidence that he's able to deliver. And so our redemption is what we're talking about here, having hope in a future glory. Your future glory. What is future glory? Future glory is that you become like Christ. Go back to verse 17. Verse 17 says that we'll be glorified with him. With Jesus Christ, that will be so. Then everything in this world, that is pain, that is suffering, that is difficulty, it's going to be reversed. And so you, you think about like think about things that happened this week. Let me tell you something. Racism is sin. Let me condemn it as hard as I can in this in, the, in this in this church. There's no no space in this church. If you're a racist, you feel uncomfortable with these words. It's probably in the church for you, or I need you to repent. 
Because in heaven, there ain't going to be any racism. And, and some of you are suffering and struggling. And, and I had one woman after the first service, she said, I'm praising God for cancer. That is awesome. God's got her there in that moment. There ain't going to be any cancer in heaven. There's not going to be any physical pain in heaven. And so what does it mean to be like Christ? It is true. Did you see in this passage it says we have first fruits? You know what first fruits are? The first fruits of glory? The first fruits are the fruit of the Spirit. And so you think about a farmer, and I know this is an agricultural community, more of a science community, but a farmer, when he first sees an orange on a tree or he first sees the, you know, the buds coming out, whatever the fruit is going to be, it's signs of things to come. It gives hope. And so we haven't fully realized our You're redeemed. Positionally, before God, you are redeemed. But we still struggle with sin. Romans chapter 7, even Paul's talking about this. What Romans chapter 8 is about, struggling with this sin. But if you've got more of the fruit of the Spirit in your life now than you did, say, a few years ago, you're more patient more kind, more gentle. You, you don't fully have all the love that we talk about, but you, you're more loving. Those are signs of what's to come. There'll be no frustration with work in heaven. Total fulfillment. There's no, no vanity, no purposelessness like creation's experiencing now. But full, you're fully satisfied, completely all the time. You know one of the amazing things about childbirth, you talk about how bad the pain is, is that women do it more than once. <laughs> and they're not just crazy. It's because the joy so surpasses the suffering. In fact, John talks about that. And I've had friends that are doctors tell me that what happens when a woman gives birth is that there's this hormone that goes through, it's like this euphoric state that happens in their body. And so the pain's not even worth comparing to the joy. Remember, I had a friend that was talking through this series about, and, and she was sharing with me, her struggle in waiting is when she doesn't know the end. And she can know the end is bad or good. Either way, it makes waiting easier. As a believer, you know the end. Think about it. You're willing to wait for stuff when you know it's good. Have you ever been to an amusement park? <laughs> you ever, some of you are like, yeah, I would never wait three hours for a 30-second ride. I'm considering. I'm weighing it out. That doesn't work. And so you've got an amen already up here. But some people, that, that's worth waiting for. And so you do it. But some people, most of us, we go, I don't know, is it that fun? You know, I have to decide. You, you consider and you decide, if you're a Duke fan, the Cameron Crazies that camp out for tickets, amen. Now Jim's amening. <laughs> because you, it's worth the wait. And what Paul's saying here is that your glory, the future glory, when you receive your glorified body, when you fully experience redemption, when you fully experience what it is to be a child of God, when you know what it's like to be in his glory, you're not even going to think about the pain. It's like an Olympic athlete on the podium when they received their gold medal. There was probably a moment when they had a workout that was so tough they thought they were going to die. It's worth it now. And Paul's saying this is so much better, you're not even going to think about that. That's the hope, and it's a certain hope. It's a promised hope. So you can't just hope for anything you want with New Testament hope. It's not, you know, I'm going to hope with absolute certainty that I get this job or this house or this, this healing or this thing. You don't have any promises for your circumstances, just so you know. You've got a lot of promises about eternity. And you can be absolutely certain, New Testament certain, about those promises being fulfilled because of who you're trusting in. And so in the waiting, what God does, he develops our trusting. So application, what do we do? Well, you know, there's times when we just don't know. And so I can't pick every circumstance in this room, but I do know that we should go to God, that we should cry out to God because we have his spirit. And you read and he says, he says next, even what to do when you don't know what to do. Verses 26 and 27. Likewise, the spirit helps us in our weakness we're experiencing pain, because that's what this is about. We're experiencing suffering when we're in this time of waiting, like creation, groaning, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Should I pray for healing? Or maybe it's God's will that he doesn't heal. 
Should I pray for a new job? Maybe God wants me to be provided for in a different way. Should I pray for? We don't even know. But when you come surrender before God, and you want what he wants for you, delight yourself in the Lord, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches heart, that's God, knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Not just your mind, knows what's the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for our saints according to the will of God. So when you're coming before him with a submitted heart before him and you're crying out, you might be praying the wrong stuff, the wrong results that you're going for. But if you, if you want God to do his thing, you want God to show off his power, you want God to show off his goodness, then the Spirit, it's like he interprets that, changes that. It's like something's lost in translation, but don't worry, the Spirit's got it. So you've got someone interceding for you in heaven, Jesus Christ. You've got someone interceding for you in you, the Holy Spirit, to God according to his will. So when you don't know what to do, cry out to God. He'll take care of it. But then he talks about, here's what you can know. Here's what you can know. You can know all the promises. You want to have hope in something? He gives a great promise in verse 28, one that we oftentimes misapply. Look at what it says, and now we've been talking about it in context. And we know, we know, this is what we do know for certain, that for those who love God, that is not a qualification. Like, you've got to love God a certain level. All believers, that's what he's talking about. Those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, his will. He's just talking about verse 27. And so what does good mean? Well, look at the context. It's like blocked in here. Verse 17 set this whole passage up. You're going to suffer and you're going to be glorified. You know what that means? You're going to be like Christ. Verse 29, you read verse 29, it says you're going to be conformed to the image of Christ. That means in every situation. It doesn't mean everything is good. Sexual abuse is not good. Famine, not good. Some of the pain that we experience in this life, not good. Infertility, not good. But God can use it for good, meaning he can make you more like his son, Jesus Christ, through it. And so my question for you today is this, not just why should we wait, in what way, for those of you who are believers, does God want to make you more like Jesus? And for those of you who are not believers, there's a, there's a reason why God's waiting. Second Peter chapter 3 and verse 9, he's not willing that any would perish. There's a reason Jesus hasn't come back yet. There's a reason why he hasn't called all those people home yet. And the reason is because he's waiting for you to place your faith in Jesus Christ. He's waiting for everybody that has not turned to Jesus to repent, not willing that any would perish. For him, a day is like a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. And so he's waiting for people to turn to him. You need to turn to Jesus Christ. I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that in just a second. Well, for those of you who are believers in Jesus, in what way does he want to make you more like Jesus? What's the next area? Because he doesn't do it all at once. Thank God for that. That would be really painful. And maybe it's your patience. And maybe it's you're so tempted by the temporary and wants to lift your eyes to eternal focus. Maybe it's your greed. Maybe it's your gossip. Maybe it's, your, maybe it's some other area of life. Maybe it's the kindness. Maybe it's goodness. Maybe it's some other thing. I don't know. God knows. He speaks to your heart. You want to know, if you want to know the answer, ask the one who has all the answers. As we talk about as a church, we want to connect people to Jesus for life change. And some people make the mistake of thinking that means we just want to get people saved. We want to get them to trust Christ as their Savior. That's not what the vision means, just so you know. That's the first step of many steps. And so some of you, some of you here maybe feel disconnected from God or you feel disconnected from other people. If you feel disconnected from other people, let me tell you where the first step of that is. It's your connection with God. Because when you have the vertical taken care of, then it, it, bend, it flexes over into the horizontal relationships we have with each other. And so you got a disconnection with some folks or whatever. Make sure your heart's right with God first. Let him make you more like Jesus. Ask him, how do you want to make me more like Jesus? Because you need to continue to be connected to Jesus for life change. It's part of the whole spiritual journey, being connected with him. 
And so you can ask God that question. I'm going to pray for us, but ask that question. Why should we wait? You know, why, why should I wait at the stop sign? The stop sign is just a microcosm of the whole spiritual life. Why should you wait? You know why you should wait? Because the best is yet to come. And we have eternal hope for that, eternal certainty that God's going to fulfill his promises. And so we wait because we're trusting God's promises because of who we wait with. Let me pray.